We start in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing... They cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, Praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And our last reading is from Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthina. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it and said, The man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. My goal for this message today is for you to see and to savor Jesus Christ's suffering on the cross for you. And it's my belief that Jesus is intending to invoke this entire passage when he's on the cross saying, Eli, Eli. He, he is intending to communicate to an audience who would have known this psalm, and he would have been intending to say, this is being fulfilled at this very moment. There are very concrete examples in this psalm which speak to the uh, details of Christ's suffering. If you've ever heard the story, maybe you've watched a Jesus video, uh, perhaps a movie like The Passion of the Christ, you may remember some of the things that this psalm talks about. First is Jesus's quotation, then Jesus, or the psalmist, uh, which I believe is is by the, by the Holy Spirit speaking uh, as the voice of Christ on the cross here. That's going to be my interpretive hermeneutic, uh, that he is saying that they divide his clothes, that, that happens. You, you know of a few uh, tent posts, and I'm going to attempt to, by going through this psalm, show you the whole thing. As in, we know a few cornerstones or a few boundary lines of, interpretive, uh, of the interpretive fr- framework of seeing this psalm as relating to Jesus Christ, but I think it's vital that we look at it in detail. Uh, going back to Jesus movies for a second, it's one of the most common things in our culture for us to see videos uh, of of the crucifixion. Uh, the most recent one that was the most famous was The Passion of the Christ, which was happened in the last decade, but it's still a cultural marker such that we all remember, well, those of us who saw it, we will never forget what we saw visibly. But it's my belief that the visible demonstration of the crucifixion scene is not enough to convey what Christ goes through on the cross. That's why he gives us his word. It's not enough for us to see a a movie like that and see the physical uh, suffering that Christ goes through without also at the same time understanding the social and the spiritual suffering that Christ encounters on the cross. And without, without seeing that, I think we miss something vital that is actually more loving we, we are desensitized in our culture to physical suffering, but one of the things that we still have a very good core value, because we're 
turning to what you may call a postmodern worldview, or that is a worldview that's more focused on social truth or truth in community rather than objective truth or propositional truth. We have a lot of empathy for understanding social concerns in our culture today, and I want to use that to be able to see what Christ goes through on the cross as he's suffering. So uh, we're going to look at seven elements. Seven, that's biblical. Boy, this is good. Uh, Christ's intentional quotation of the psalm, he, he intends to quote and intends to invoke. And by invoke, I mean uh, not, not in some sort of magic sort of invocation, but rather by using the beginning of the psalm, he's referring to all of it. Uh, I want to look at Jesus Christ on the cross as forsaken, not separated. It's very important that as Christians, we understand that the Father and the Son never broke eternal fellowship. What happens in Christ's words of saying, why have you forsaken me, is that God's presence to bless is removed and God's wrath to pour out on the sin which Christ takes on himself is present. In no way do we teach, as we're going to look at in detail in this point, that God himself died because God is eternal. He is the eternal divine being. The divine nature cannot perish. If, if he did die, if God died when Christ died, then the world would cease to be uh, immediately because the scriptures teach plainly that God is the one who upholds the universe. It's not as if God set a clock in motion and then it's been kind of moving throughout time, throughout history. God himself is currently sustaining the created order, the created world. And if Christ, when he dies, also perishes as the Logos, the word of God, then our, our faith is shattered. Our understanding of God is destroyed. And so we must understand the wisdom of the church throughout the ages as she has rejected this idea that God himself dies on the cross. Jesus Christ dies. And we're going to look at exactly how that works. We're going to look at the psalm who the psalmist says at this point, God's covenantal faithfulness is the reason for his trusting in the Father, even on the cross. That it's not just his personal experience, which we will talk about, but even as he's being mocked, even as he's being brutally uh, beaten, scourged, he has faith in God, not because of his own faith, but rather because of God's example. As in, Jesus Christ on the cross is not just remembering God's faithfulness to him, but also his faithfulness to his people. And as an Israelite, Jesus is remembering what God has done for Israel. He unites with his people even while they reject him. And that's amazing. And that's what what I'm getting to when I talk about social suffering and spiritual suffering that Christ goes through. We're going to look at God's personal faithfulness to Christ as another reason not the only reason, but another reason for him continuing to, even on the cross, believe that although God is pouring wrath on him, the wrath that is due on sin, even in the midst of that, he's doing the Father's will. And at this point, Christ is on the cross and he's encountering two simultaneous things. He's being mocked by the people. And then also he's being surrounded by his actual enemies. The people from time to time in his ministry were somewhat neutral or beneficial or, or, or happy with Christ. But at this point, they mock him. And then also his adversaries finally surround him. And then finally, we're going to look at after the resurrection in this psalm, Christ is saying that he will again tell his brothers 
of a hope and a future. And I believe that's speaking of the Eucharist and our future as the church. So uh, we're going to get into this passage. If you do have your Bibles, the, the verses will be on the slides, but if you do have a Bible either on your phone or uh, with you, it may help you to, uh, to see it along with us. So David is called a prophet in Acts 2. We know David is a king. We know David is uh, a prophet, according to Acts 2. And when Peter is giving the first sermon, he speaks as if he is using an interpretive hermeneutic or a, or a way of reading. Hermeneutic just means way of reading. That he has the ability to, by the Holy Spirit, understand that although David wrote a particular psalm, and no one maybe was thinking it related to the Messiah, it actually does. And because of what has now been plainly shown in time, in history, through the work of Jesus Christ, in that very moment, now his eyes are open. And I believe Jesus Christ is intending to convey this exact understanding. Even though the psalm is written biographically about David's life, I believe that the Holy Spirit is superintending that writing so as that David is also prophesying about the Messiah. This is not a, a unique passage in the Psalms. In fact, there's a wonderful book if you ever uh, want to get a look at Christ in the Psalms. It's, it's by that same title, Christ in the Psalms, by Tom Kelby. And he's a, he's a brother in the ARC. He's a wonderful brother, and I love, love that guy. It's a very nice workbook. It's $15. You can see me after, and I can get you hooked up with it. But just as we've done series in the past on Christ in the Old Testament, we haven't spent a lot of time in the Psalms. And I want to begin to train us how to read the Psalms in a messianic way, or that is, what is this Psalm saying about Jesus Christ? If it's just talking about David, that's okay, and that's good, and I can get a moral example from that, and I can see David's faithfulness. But if it's talking about Christ— then I can glory in it. Then I can see what God himself did for me. So it's my understanding that this is a messianic psalm. And this isn't my invention. This is a, a standard interpretation throughout the church. I believe that Christ's intention in invoking this psalm on the cross is threefold. That, that means he has three goals in using this psalm. First, it's to express his faithful suffering to the Father. Even at the Garden of Gethsemane, when Christ is praying to the Father, he says, Father, let this cup of suffering pass from me. And then he says, but not my will, but rather your will be done. Christ goes willingly to the cross, and it's his intention to show by quoting this psalm, which is full of faithfulness in God in the midst of being surrounded by all of his enemies that he's intending by quoting this psalm to demonstrate that he is still having faith in the Father. He is not sinning at any moment on the cross. He never gives into the temptation to believe that he is now being rejected by God, although he is rejected by the people. He completely trusts the Father, even all the way through death. That's why we say, that's why the New Testament says that Christ was faithful to the end. He was faithful through his death, and that's what he's intending to express. He's also making an earnest plea for sustaining help in his suffering. Just like you, just like I, Christ relied on the grace of God to live as a man. 
even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. What that means is Christ by the Spirit is completing the will of God on the cross. And he is doing this not disconnected from the Father, but connected to the Father. And then finally, I think his last motivation in intending to invoke this psalm in our minds, in the minds of his readers, is to show for us the great measure of love. It is not enough for you to understand that he was beaten to what crassly might be called a bloody pulp. The, The Passion of the Christ gets so much right. A movie like that, in the popular mind, does express some truth about the suffering of Christ physically, but that's not all that happens on the cross. Christ is given up to his enemies and is rejected by the people. And it's vital that we see that dimension of his suffering. Because without it, we have a truncated view of what God intended to do. God is not just talking about a physical resurrection of his body, but also a social resurrection. And what I mean by that is God, who had been working with the people of Israel, time and again, she had rebelled against him. And here at the cross, Christ is atoning, not just for the sins done in the body, but also the sins done in the spirit, done in our minds. And so here he is taking on himself the rejection of all of the people of Israel. He is the one who is typified by the scapegoat. The scapegoat is, is a goat in, in the Old Testament, which they would confer all the sins of the community on, not just sins of, the, of a person. And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness. And this is telling us about what happens when Christ dies. And so we're going to look at that in great detail today. I believe this psalm is a prophetic oracle that is something told beforehand concerning the depth of the suffering, both in body and soul, which Christ experiences in the crucifixion. Uh, This psalm does talk about his physical suffering, but it also talks in poetic language about what's happening in his spirit. So let's look at this element really quickly. By the word forsaken, the psalm does not at all mean that there is a dissolution of the hypostatic union. Now, that's a really big phrase. Let me break it down. The hypostatic union is a doctrine that we've talked about many times, um, but what it means is that in the person of Jesus Christ, he is both fully God and fully man. The two natures, not mingled, distinct, but in one person. And this is a mystery of the Christian faith, which we understand to be on the order of difficulty to believe by the natural mind, as is the Trinity. That is, God eternally exists in the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet we teach, and Christianity has always taught, that God is one being. And so there's a difference in beings and persons. That is, he is one being in three persons. Now you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I would respond, well, sure it does. There are tons of examples that you know of a difference in beings in persons. If you're only thinking about human beings, we think one human being, one person. And if you've got any more than one person going on in your human being, you need to talk to a doctor, (laughs) right? We call that, you know, schizophrenia or whatever. Uh, You know, I sometimes am tempted to think, oh, I want that donut. Oh, I don't want that donut. But it's still me at the end of the day. But let's look past human beings. We know, for example, dogs have emotive capability. They can, they can cry. I mean, dogs are wonderful. Um, that's why I appreciate other people's dogs. Uh, <laughs> not, not a dog of my own in my house. Um, but 
the, the point is, a dog certainly has emotional capability, but we wouldn't ascribe personhood to a dog. And if you, if let's say you object to that idea, you say, oh, well, dogs are people. Let's go a little bit lower on the animal kingdom and go down to bacteria. Certainly a bacteria is a being. It's a living thing. It, it has the ability to intake nutrients, to process them, to output waste, and to replicate or multiply uh, asexual reproduction. Uh, certainly everyone would agree that bacteria are living, and no one would ever defend the proposition that bacteria are philosophers. Uh, they don't have person. They don't have rational thought. There's no evidence that we could ever say a bacteria has, you know, a, a soul. Uh, likewise, with trees, you know, I appreciate trees. I think they communicate something about God's being. That is, the, plain, the things about God are plainly seen in the created order. But I don't go around whispering to my trees um, because they're not people, but they are beings. So there's an example of things in the world that we know that have a difference in being and persons. And so we understand that the Trinity isn't a logical contradiction. Beings and persons are different. Now that's as far as I think rationality will take us into the Trinity, and the rest has to get there by faith. Um, we have to understand these things and hold them by the Spirit. And this is a doctrine that we hold by the Spirit, uh, the hypostatic union of Christ. That is, he is both fully God and fully man. And when Christ dies, God does not die. That is, God, the person who is the Word of God, does not expire. He is not destroyed when Christ dies. So we can never say uh, that that takes place. On the cross, Jesus experiences the removal of God's gracious presence, and he experiences instead the wrath of God being poured against sin. That is what I, it, what I believe Christ means when he says, why have you forsaken me? That is, Christ was always dwelling in the bosom of his Father, even before he was born, Christ existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit. And at this moment, Christ loses a blessing presence. That is the presence of God to bless and to be near to him and confer hope to his, to his heart, to his soul. Here at this point, there is some sort of separation, but it's not, uh, sorry, some sort of forsaking, but it's not a separating. There is no break in the divinity of Jesus Christ. There's no death of God at the cross. Now, some may object and say that limits the atonement. No, it doesn't. Not at all. Because Christ, as, as a man, fully takes on himself the wrath of God to pay for the penalty of sin. And that's exactly what takes place here. In no way can we ever say it is the second person of the Trinity who died. That's important for you to know as a Christian. That may sound really mental or really theological, uh, but that's very important for you to know. God does not change. And in the crucifixion, it is not an undoing of God's being. But rather, Christ personally suffers and takes on the sin of the world. When Christ utters these words, he's not implying that God has become a traitor to him. He's not, he's not saying on the cross, hey, you promised me in the garden that you were going to be with me and I was going to do your will. But now that I'm here, it seems like everything that I thought was going to happen is completely different. I thought you were going to deliver me and you didn't. No, Christ is not saying that at all. And in fact, by this psalm, we see that over and over again, the psalmist is saying that I'm going to remain faithful to God, even in the midst of being surrounded by my enemies and being given up completely to those who are seeking my life. At the very end, Christ is still trusting in his Father, that his Father will vindicate him. And he knows plainly the entire time what it's going to take.
Christ goes to the cross willingly and joyfully. Remember the verse, for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross despising the shame. He didn't, he didn't like the shame, he despised it, but he loved the joy of doing the Father's will and receiving the reward, which was a bride which is being made pure and spotless, which includes all those who trust in him. And that is why Christ went to the cross. Love of the Father, desire for a pure and spotless bride. So this psalm calls to mind, in the midst of a terrible situation, the faithfulness of God. This is amazing how Christ is able to draw on his understanding of God's faithfulness, even going through the worst physical suffering. This last winter, I did something that uh, was very silly. In the middle of the night, I have a, a nightlight in my bathroom. But in the middle of the night, I decided I needed to go to the bathroom. And I just was like, okay, well, I'm you know in and out. Be done real quick. And I didn't turn on the light. And I just decided, oh, I'll use the nightlight alone. And I broke my pinky toe because I ran into the wall. I have a little part of my wall which juts out from the... And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, I've done some silly things. I've hit my hand with a hammer. I've experienced a, you know, a few disjointed you know, parts. But at that moment, I was not remembering the covenant faithfulness of God. <laughs> I was remembering other things. It is amazing to me that Christ on the cross, as a man, aided by the Holy Spirit, of course, never sinning, is able to draw to my, to call to mind a memory of the covenant faithfulness of God. What do I mean by covenant faithfulness? I mean he remembers what God has done in the past as it related to God's old promises that he fulfilled. Verse 3, yet you are holy. Even while I am experiencing this forsakenness, Christ is saying he's blessing the Father, enthroned on the praises of Israel, for in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered him. He's saying why he's trusting. Verse 5, to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He does not indict God. This is the greatest testimony of the work of, of the Spirit in a believer's life. If they're on their deathbed, if they're going through a trial, a pain, sometimes God's deliverance of, of your situation is not going to be miraculous in an external circumstance, but what it will be, absolutely, hands down, period, full stop, is that he will deliver you from cursing God in your death. That is what it means to triumph victoriously as a Christian. It doesn't mean everything goes your way all the time, but it does mean in the midst of the suffering, you can call to mind this example, and you can say to yourself, Christ was able to and I want to follow him. Now, you may not be perfect in that, but the point is here that he is calling to mind God's faithfulness in the past, and that is giving him hope for this moment, for this suffering that he goes through. Likewise, it shows that his trust in God is not misplaced. Christ isn't delusional on the cross to be continually giving himself over to the Father's will. It's not a bait and switch. He trusts in God because God has been faithful, not because he has some leap of faith or delusional experience. And here we begin to see at this point in the psalm a glimpse of the social aspect of the passion of Jesus Christ. That word passion is a little bit distorted in modern English. To us, it means like zeal for my career or zeal for a hobby. What passion means, though, 
if you look at the root of the word as it began in English, is suffering. You, you know you're really passionate about a project or uh, your career or a hobby when it takes over and causes pain in your life. You know, this is what true passion is. Christ is suffering in his heart at this moment. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Contrast this with just a week earlier when Christ is entering into Jerusalem and the people of Israel, people of Jerusalem, are shouting from the sides of the roads, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here he says he's despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. Now we see this descent into uh, into sorrow here taking place. They wag their heads. I don't know about you. I've faced a little bit of rejection in my life, uh, mainly by one or two people at a time. Here Christ is in the middle of the people that he's trying to reach, trying to save, and they reject him. They turn away from him. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The people are mocking him for his faithfulness in God. Why? Because they only see naturally. They only see it doesn't look like God is saving him from the cross. So why is he continuing to trust him? Though Christ was sinless in the midst of God's people, for three whole years he was publicly presented as a perfect teacher who not only spoke with authority, but also was able to drive out demons and to heal lepers and to cause those who were born lame to walk and to cause those who were born blind to see. He had done nothing wrong in three years of public ministry. I stopped tweeting that much because I was getting things wrong. Christ never erred in word or deed, right? I mean, think about just one hour of your life and then compare that to the worthiness of Jesus Christ's perfect example. And yet, even despite that, he dies in their place and they despise him for it. They are the people who, according to the word of God, are those who trust in Yahweh. And they're mocking him for doing that. They're mocking him for trusting in the very God who they say is their God. The people of Israel were devoted to Yahweh. They were pulled out of Egypt by Yahweh himself, and he installed them in the promised land. He allowed them to grow, to flourish, to multiply. He blessed them, and at this moment, when Christ is dying for their sins, they mock him for trusting in God. This is amazing to me. Beyond being sinless, Christ brought the greatest spiritual revival upon the land that they had ever seen. If you look at the history of the prophets throughout all of, all of this, the greatest revival that ever takes place in the land of Israel takes place through the ministry of John the Baptist, culminating in the public ministry of Christ. It's, it's a great crescendo of light on, on this land, a land that's living in darkness, as Isaiah says. A people who dwell in great darkness have seen a great light. Little lights had come before the prophets, the kings, the various ones who instituted reforms, the judges, etc. But now a great light shows up on their land, and they would rather have darkness. The psalm speaks in concert with Isaiah's prophecy concerning Yahweh's servant. If you've ever read Isaiah 53, you may remember it says that he was despised and rejected. It wasn't his grief, but rather our grief which became his grief. It was for us that he was afflicted. It was our affliction that he was afflicted with. 
It wasn't his own. And he wasn't despised because of himself, but rather for us. And this is exactly what this psalm is speaking in concert with. So even after he's remembered God's covenant faithfulness, he now calls to mind God's faithfulness to him. And we see this very clearly. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you were I cast, uh, was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And that informs verse 11, be not far from me. The reason why he is able to say on the cross, be not far from me, is because he calls to mind God's faithful dealings with him in his life. And at this point, we see a glimpse of the life of Christ. There was not a time when Jesus was not trusting in God, nor because that would obviously be sin. And and the way that it plays out is that there's not a time when the Father is not protecting him. Even on the cross, God is allowing Christ to take the wrath fully, but not in such a way as would be irreparable. That is, the resurrection comes because the Father is vindicating that Christ suffered sufficiently. He didn't leave a few sins for you to be chastised over later. He takes on the full weight of the suffering that was due to us. But God doesn't torment the Son. And this is is so often the modern objection to the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, which I believe if you reject, you have no gospel at all. But the modern objection is, well, it seems like the Father is torturing Christ. It could never be the case. Christ is not being tortured unduly. He's not receiving anything that is wrong for him to receive. It's right for him to take on the sins of those he's going to save. When Herod plots to kill Christ, at the beginning of his life, God, by the angel, tells Joseph to take the family into Egypt. Also, at one point, God tells by an angel, Joseph, not to divorce Mary. And God has been protecting Christ throughout all of his life, and he continues to show faithfulness to him. And Christ remembers these moments, and that's why he continues to have faith that he is doing the Father's will, even though all the evidence is to the contrary. Christ, in the midst of all of his sufferings, puts his trust in God. So now we begin to see at this point in the psalm that Christ is given up to be in the center of his enemies. I want you to think about any movie that you've seen, uh, maybe military movie, maybe something like, I don't know, Saving Private Ryan or Black Hawk Down, something, something that conveys to you uh, an example of someone who's been given up to his enemies. Maybe perhaps, I think, especially for those of us who saw this as a child, the, 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 comer, uh, the comical versions of Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Aslan, who is a shadow of Christ, he's a you know, poetic picture of Jesus, is given up and he's surrounded by the witch and all her little ghouls and demons and, and uh, creepy things. Uh, at this point, Christ, these are all stories which are kind of pointing back to what happens here at the cross. There has never been a time where someone was more fully given up to his enemies than right here. He is given up, and they completely uh, surround him. And at this point, we see the depth of the sorrow of what the social rejection and the social suffering that Christ faces on the cross really and truly is. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Who, who is called a roaring lion in the scriptures? 
Satan goes about like a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. How many of you know that your heart isn't supposed to be melting? This, of course, is poetic language, but I think there's also physical suffering indicated here. But it surely is a state of being in which Christ is descending into the midst of his suffering. And it's in the context, not of protection, not of safety, not of friendship around him to help him through this suffering, but rather it's in the midst of being surrounded by his enemies. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. Now, a pot's herd is kind of an old word, but what it just means is a pot that's been fired, uh, been uh, heated up and cooked in a fire, or a group of pieces of pottery that have been dashed and then refired to to make either stones or bricks. But the idea here is that Christ is going through a, uh, a torment, if you will, uh, a, a suffering that goes beyond what is really able for us to, what we are really able to understand. It's a suffering that takes place not only physically, but also in body and spirit. My strength is dried up, dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to, to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He's saying that he is going down to death here. And this is far greater than we could understand by any mere picture. This is showing what's going on in his heart as he is willingly and joyfully but at the same time experiencing the effects of sin. Not his sin, but rather ours. What does sin do? It alienates from God. It alienates from other people. And we see that in the crucifixion. Jesus Christ is despised by all the people. He's rejected by all the people. It wasn't as if someone on the sidelines was really cheering him on. Now, I believe, of course, there were a few faithful disciples, but they had rejected him efficiently. I mean, effectively. They had, they had run in his most important hour. These people, these, scru- these bulls of Bashan, are none other than the scribes and Pharisees, Caiaphas, Ananias, uh, uh, these people who surround him. And Herod and Pontius Pilate are the, those who seek his life. Pontius Pilate, which we understand to be uh, a, an indication or a signatory of Rome, he didn't show any concern to Jesus Christ. I mean, I think in my mind, actually, Pontius Pilate has one of the more grievous sins in the whole crucifixion account. If anyone had any authority to actually spare him, it was Pontius Pilate. He said, I've got the authority. Jesus responds, you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you. And what does he do? He doesn't show any concern. He shows indifference. He washed his hands of the matter. That's where we get that phrase. It's from this story. He washed his hands of the matter, saying, I'm not, I'm not going in, to even intervene. I don't care enough to get involved. And that apathy is actually one aspect of the hatred which Christ receives in going to the cross. The bulls of Bashan in, in Amos 4 are compared to kings and leaders who oppress and destroy the poor. This phrase, Bashan, is only used, I think, three times, maybe four, in the whole scriptures. Here, Amos, and I think in Deuteronomy. But the, the point is that these are, these are cows, these bulls of Bashan. They're cows or bulls who are making themselves fat. They're, they make themselves puffed up by devouring the weak and the poor and the widowed. And here, this is what they're doing. They are attempting to, by killing Christ, you know, redeem and and claim all those who were beginning to follow him. Again, we see his suffering 
In verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And there we see another one of those foundational stones on the way in which we're trying to understand this psalm. Clearly, this is talking about Christ. They've pierced his hands and feet, which took place literally on the cross. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is exactly what takes place when Christ is on the cross. They take his robe, which he had, and they cut it up into pieces. Now, I want you to think about anything that you own that is precious to you. I have uh, an instrument which is probably, I, I don't play it that often, it's not my guitar. I have an instrument that is very nice, and it's, it stays at my house mainly because I'm not good enough to play it in public. But it's very nice. And um, I own a few things that are nicer than that. Um, but I want you to think about what it would be like to be in this scenario. Christ has been rejected by all of his followers. Uh, he, he asked three of his most close disciples to pray with him for a little bit at the garden, and they weren't able to pray. And when the, the, the company of bandits came to get him, everyone left. And now the very things that he's taking with him to the crucifixion are cut up before his eyes. And it says that his tunic is one piece, so they weren't able to tear it. So they decide instead to gamble over it. I mean, his, his, the very property that he had, they were intending to, this is emotional torment that they're intending to inflict upon him. As in, not only are you going to die on this cross, but all of your life's work, all of your life's stuff is coming to nothing. It's being given to someone else. It's being torn apart before your eyes. Now, robes and tunics talk about covering. And so here we understand Christ doesn't have his robe on the cross. He doesn't have his tunic to cover him. And as scandalous as this is, Christ goes to the cross and we understand that he is hanging there naked, bearing the shame of the whole world. Here Christ is seen as one who suffered not only a physical suffering, but also a social suffering. His heart is melting like wax before him. And even the things that he had on his way to the crucifixion are being cut apart and given away and gambled over like they're a trivial, trivial thing. Even in the midst of all of this suffering, God does not despise him and does not leave him in his death, but he raises him up. And this is where you really have to kind of pause. If you ever read this later, you know, you kind of have to pause because the psalm takes a turn here. We descend and we descend and we descend, and then at this moment, everything changes. Now, here there's not a lot of words that give explicit reference to the resurrection, but here, even at this moment, there is a turn of theme into hope. And that hope, we understand, is the resurrection. Even though he did die, Christ looks forward to the resurrection and a res restoration of being in the assembly. Remember, all of his brothers and all of the people had turned from him, but look at what takes place. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Here, this suffering serpent takes on the rejection, the suffering, the physical tortures, and, and at that point, 
then descends into death. And here, there's a promise. There's a promise of new life. There's a promise of restoration. Even though he's in the midst of all of his enemies, God will vindicate him. And he will one day declare God's faithfulness to his brothers. And that's what takes place in the resurrection. We see the promise of God at this point about continuing uh, provision. He will establish food for the weary and will cause all the families of the earth to return. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Why are they going to eat? Because Christ is making a meal for them. They will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Contrast that with what he's encountering. My heart is melting like wax in me. And he says the promise for these brothers who he's declaring them to is that their hearts will live because of what God will do. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. That's pretty cool. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever read that. Let me do it again. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Christ goes into the deepest suffering, and yet God vindicates him, and it turns into a wellspring of life for all mankind. Would that we would, that we would drink of him. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. This is the greatest, uh, not bait and switch, not trick. This is the greatest, in a good way, deception that God has ever done on the powers of evil. Colossians says that if the rulers had even known what was about to happen, they would have never crucified him. It looks on the cross like Christ is given up, he's betrayed, he's by his followers, and God has forsaken him. But here, Christ triumphs through suffering. He goes into suffering and comes out victorious. This destroys all of our false understanding that to be victorious, we have to be delivered from our problems. We don't have to be delivered from our problems to be victorious. What we plainly have to do is not curse God in the middle of them. The reason why the martyrs of the church were faithful to the end is because he was faithful to the end. And though Christ did not deliver them in that moment from their death, he delivered them in a way. He delivered them in the most important way, that is, they did not curse God in their death. What an amazing vindication of the suffering servant. This is beautiful to me. Christ, at this point in the psalm, is declaring a promised meal of the future and a promised hope for the world. Christ is surrounded by his enemies, rejected by his people, abandoned by his followers, with his life being poured out unto death, and even though he dies, he is raised up to proclaim a promise to his brothers. What an amazing vindication indeed. This, to me, is one of the greatest psalms that we can begin to study and meditate on by, by, by faith. That is, we meditate in our times of reading. And I would ask that when you read a psalm like this, you ask God to give you a little bit of a taste of what is he talking about. God, what are you saying to me in this? It's my opinion that if we behold this, it will cause great love for Jesus Christ. Because... He loved us unlike anyone has ever loved us, nor could anyone ever love us like this. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words concerning the suffering of Jesus. We pray, God, that you would give to us 
a godly inquisitiveness that we would long to see these wonderful things from your book. God, we ask that you would give us a, a heart that would be quick to believe. Lord, I pray that you would break down in my life and the life of all those who are here, those things which hold you at a distance. And God, we know that we love you because first you loved us. Even though we didn't understand it at the time, you died for us. And God, we ask you that by faith we would behold Jesus Christ and that he would become for us sweet and savory and beautiful and glorious. God, I pray that you would give us strength in the midst of our sufferings, that we would remember what you went through and that we would be able to, in those moments, by faith in what you've done, not in faith of what we can do, but in what you have done, that we would be able to, in those moments, even see a glimpse, like in a mirror, very darkly, of what you go through on the cross. God, we pray that you would open our eyes, and Lord, I pray that you would renew us in your love, and that you would revive us according to your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.